I'm sorry. That's because I beat you over here from co-op, huh? Hey, we're going to be in Isaiah 45 tonight, so I want to invite you to go there. And here, we're in a section in Isaiah where Isaiah is kind of building on a couple of ideas. One idea is he's building on the concept that God is incomparable. There's no other God like him. We're going to hear this repeated over and over and over again in the text of Scripture. But we're also... uh, Mixed within that, going to hear about how God is moving in history, that there's a purpose, that life is going from God's creation to God's conclusion, even as we would read through Genesis through Revelation, that ultimately God is guiding history. We're going to arrive where he says we're going to arrive. And and for them, I just want you to kind of put yourself in the, as a, Somebody within the children of Israel, what are they, what are they thinking? They were just, uh, they just had the first half of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah telling them and, and, and encouraging them that God is able to deliver them if they need him to. And then the Assyrian army comes against them, has them all cornered, all penned in, and God does what Isaiah said he would do. God delivers them. He delivers them from the Assyrian army and then, uh, the people are, are, like given this, this uh, shown this test that God is able. He is able to deliver. He is able to save. And so after that, Isaiah starts to talk about the fact that they're going into captivity. Now this captivity they're going into, they don't even understand. They're probably, at, at least in the early days, uh, around chapter 39-ish, 40 of Isaiah, they're... They're in the early days and maybe making some poor choices, some bad kings starting to come on the scene. But for the most part, they're still going after the Lord. And Isaiah is telling them a future event is coming about 150 years from now. You're, this nation is going to be captured. And the temple is going to be sacked. And they can't imagine that God would allow something like that to happen. Now, now, how that can apply to us is sometimes in our lives, there are events that occur in our life, and we can't imagine God could use this event, this thing, whatever it is, whatever the, the trial, the struggle, the enemy, whoever it is, we, we don't imagine how God could possibly be using that. How that in any way could bring glory or honor to Him, and we find ourselves in the same place the children of Israel were at, questioning, how can this be? How could you use the Babylonians to to judge us? They're wicked people too. And all of these questions they start wrestling with and they start to to ponder and and question and so if you look carefully through Isaiah's prophecies especially from uh, 40 on and you start seeing Isaiah talking about the incomparability of God that he is everything that we need and no matter what circumstances come into our life Trials, tribulations, struggles, hardships, whatever it is, God is all we need to endure. God is all we need to rise above the circumstance. And certainly, at any moment, he's able to say, peace be still, and the storm stops. So Isaiah's challenge is to trust in him. Don't trust. How did the Proverbs say it? How did Solomon write it in the Proverbs when he's given his son these nuggets of wisdom to hold on to, the, to walk where, where God would have him walk. He said, 
in the Proverbs, he, he challenges him to trust in the Lord with lean not in your in all your ways acknowledge him and what? Isn't it the same thing? Hey, trust God. Trust God. He's telling him 150 years before an event happens. And then, roughly 70 years after that, is when Cyrus is going to show up. Cyrus isn't even born yet. And God calls him out by name. Last week in, in chapter 44, and this week in chapter 45. He's going to say that a person not even born yet is going to be born. He's going to be named Cyrus. He's going to become the ruler of the world. And he's going to be your deliverer. That's what he tells Israel. 150 years before captivity. 70 years before they're let out of their captivity. And when they're let out, the folks who are sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild will be sent there by a guy named Cyrus. Just like God said. Just like the Lord laid out. So what, is he, what does He want us to be able to, to hold on to? What does He want us to understand? Even though God's going to call Cyrus His anointed, which, by the way, is an interesting word in the Old Testament, there's another way to say it. You guys know what it is? The anointed one? Any guesses? It's okay, you can talk in church. I won't holler at you. Messiah. Yeah, that's right. Messiah. We've heard of Messiah before. Haven't we heard of Messiah before? All Messiah means is anointed one. And he says here, Cyrus is going to be his anointed one. Let's look at it, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the the, the uh, impronounceable name of God. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, to Cyrus. That's pretty wild. And like I said, Cyrus not even born. He's not going to be born for probably 100 years or more. His mom and dad aren't even together yet. Nobody's thinking about Cyrus. The Medes and the Persians are, are being laughed at currently. The Babylonians aren't even in power. So we're talking about two full world kingdoms away. But God calls him out by name. Why? Because he knows the end from the beginning. Can you trust someone who knows the end from the beginning? We don't. I, I don't always know where things are going and, and, and the whys and the wherefores, but I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded He is able to keep me unto that day. He is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine according to the power that works in us. He is incomparable. There's nobody else like Him. Thus He says to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, for what purpose? To subdue the nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. So God is saying, before Cyrus is ever born, I'm going to ensure your success in your world conquest. We're going to see it in... I think it's 539. Uh, yeah, 539 BC, he is declared the ruler of the world. Cyrus. He conquers Babylon, and the Babylonians didn't know they were conquered for three days. He's brilliant. 
I mean, ultimately, he, he staged a one-night coup in Babylon, which, was, which is like the king of the world, right? Babylon is going to be a world power. They go in, they, they find the way in. When everybody said Babylon was impenetrable, they find their way in, and they conquer Babylon in the middle of the night. In fact, there was a fella in Babylon. Maybe you remember his name? He met with the king, right? And the king was drinking wine out of the, the temple instruments that they had taken out of the temple, the gold and things they had brought. And a hand appeared and wrote on a wall, you remember? Many, many tekel you farsin. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Tonight, your kingdom will be taken from you. Yeah, it's, that's the same Cyrus. He comes in, takes it. That fellow who was with that, that's Daniel. Guess who he ends up serving? Yeah. So we have, we have all these things tied together. All these prophets, their ministries come together. They focus on this idea. And the idea, the thing that they want to get across to their people and that we want to get across to us is that God is incomparable. He is all we need. If we have Him, we have everything. No matter what we face, no matter what's going on. He says, look, I'm going to... I'm telling you, before you're born, you're going to be ruler of the world, and I'm going to make it happen. He's going to go before him. Verse 3 says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Before he's born, or has a name. So I'm going to call you. I want you to know it's me. I want you to know. So, so you don't think, do you think maybe... When Cyrus came through, and he's ruling and reigning there, and he puts up a ruler, Darius, Darius the Mede, he's going to be ruling. And we have, you don't think anybody told, walked over to Cyrus and said, you should read this scroll, man. Check this out. Yeah, who wrote this? They write it the day I got here? No, a couple hundred years ago. That's not crazy. It's wild. It's wild that the, the, the evidence, the, the power that we see coming through God. So God is saying, look, Cyrus, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. You'll know that I called you by name before you were born. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you even though you don't know me. So he doesn't, Cyrus doesn't know anything. Cyrus is just living his life. And his life is following the plan and purpose of God. Because God's story is going to be accomplished. We're moving toward a conclusion. God, ultimately, is in control. And he's going to get us uh, where he wants us to be. So he's calling out to Cyrus. And now he's going to, to delve in this, this idea. Isaiah wants to delve in this idea of the incomparable nature of God. Look at verse 5. I am the Lord. There is no other. There's no one like Yahweh. There may be a lot of beings that are spirit, like God is spirit, but there is only one Yahweh. There's only one Lord. There's only one God. He's declaring, there's no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Again, does it, did it require Cyrus to know God for God to be working in Cyrus' life? Did you have to know God when he was working in your life? 
Once I became a believer, I could look back and see God's fingerprints all over things. I could see God even before I even knew Him. Before I had a relationship with Him. He's the potter. I'm the clay. He's forming the clay. He's working the clay. God is at work. It's, it's one of the things that gives me hope. Right? Because, like some of you, I have children who get to make their own decisions now. When they were five... I made all their decisions. Well, let's be honest. Until they moved out, I made all their decisions. Now they've moved out. They have their own families. They're making their own decisions. And I, I maybe have a voice. I can be the voice of advice in their life. But I have no control to make sure I'm directing. But I can find comfort in the truth and the reality that God loves my kids more than I love my kids. And that God is working. That God is moving in their lives just like he moved in mine just like his fingerprints were in cyrus's life just like even when at the worst time of the history of the children of israel they're thinking god can't possibly love us look where we're at we're slaves in babylon and god is saying oh no i want you to know before you go before you're ever slaves i want you to know that this is part of my plan that you need to go through this experience. That you need to find that time in slavery to, to find yourself uh, uh, overcoming the call of idolatry nationally. But I also want you to know that when I don't leave you there. There's nothing in the Bible where God tells us, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'm going to leave you there and that's where you're going to have to stay forever. Is that what it says? 23rd Psalm, he declares, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? He gets personal. That's a point in the 23rd Psalm where God gets, where, where David gets personal with God. You are with me. He's no longer talking to an audience. He's no longer talking to his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. No, now he's personal. He's saying, You're with me. I don't have to be afraid. You're in the valley of the shadow of death with me. And the reign of Babylon, which from our time period when this prophecy is given, is still 150 years off. There are teenage children, young people, who will get thrown into a fiery furnace because they won't bow the knee to an idol. Prior, the nation of Israel would have bowed a knee to whatever idol. They were bowing these idols right and left. So they don't bow, they get thrown into the fiery furnace, and what happens? Someone's with them, right? Someone's with him, man. Someone's in there with in there with the fire. We see God do an incredible work. And then the cool part, you have a guy named Nebuchadnezzar writing a chapter in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, he, he pens one of the chapters of Daniel when he declares Yahweh to be God. It's pretty powerful. Pretty incredible the things that God's able to do uh, all throughout. God's direction. Uh, of life. He's telling them up, look, I'm going to provide you treasure because I'm calling you, Cyrus, to help my people. Cyrus don't even know them. But he's going to help them. He's going to help them. The Lord is the one. I'm the one who equips you, even though you don't know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. You catch the theme. God is God. He's the only God we need. He's everything we need. He's incomparable. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. 
There's no other way. There's no other name. There's no other person, uh, uh, being to bow the knee to. He's it. He is the only one who can save. He has already declared in the previous chapter the only Redeemer. He's the one that knows where the pieces go to put my life back together, to put your life back together. So often the problem is we're all too ready to quit way too soon. We're ready to chuck in the towel and and bail on it because things are difficult or things get hard. But that's not how we learn Christ. That's not the testimony of Scripture, is it? How many heroes of the Old Testament do we read about uh, that face incredible odds? You know, that they come standing before God with Gideon and his 30,000 only for God to say, you have too many. You need to get rid of all those guys. I'm going to whittle it down to 300. What? Yeah, no, that'd be perfect. No, I'm pretty sure that's not a good idea. Right? How many times? How many times are the people of God facing Ask why? Why is it that God wants them to face these astronomical things? Because then you know it wasn't you. You know it was Him. God delivered me. He says, I want people to know from the east to the west, everywhere, that there is no other God like me. None like me. And so that's why he's calling out Cyrus. <clears throat> Look what he says in verse 7. He says, I form the light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Look, God always declares that he has not lost control. Sometimes we want to comfort ourselves. We want to comfort ourselves and, and, and not have to deal with the hard questions that we find in in life by saying, well, well, why did God allow this to happen? But Scripture declares that it's God who allows it. That it had to pass through His hands. If God says no, it can't happen. That's what Isaiah is declaring. In, in Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light. I create the darkness. He's given us these two aspects so that we can understand that everything in life, good fortune and bad, comes from the hands of the Lord. There's not some opposing force. Now this is why this is important. If there is an opposing force, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) if there is an opposing force that is able to force its will into God's plan and God can't do anything about it, then God is not God. In order for, for Yahweh to be who He claims to be, I am God and there is no other. I'm the only one who is able to save. I'm the sovereign one, the creator of all things, both good and bad. And we've talked about it before. You and I, we're not necessarily equipped to know what's good or bad. We just go by our best guess and Often we're wrong, right? We think something's good, turns out it wasn't. Or we think something wasn't, turns out it was. We don't really know. But God does. 
And he says, I'm the one. I'm, I'm it. I'm the top. There's not another being beyond me that is able to, to force his will to accomplish any of these things. Now, what he's not declaring, he's not declaring that he creates um, uh, both moral and immoral laws. Well, what God does is God, in his creation, by p- providing the light, the light manifests what? Darkness. He knows it when he made the light. Now, in God, it says there is no darkness, no shadow of turning. So we we got to look at the whole counsel of God. But the point that Isaiah is making is, look, I want you to know that that God ultimately is still on the throne and able. And if there have been difficult things in your life, I may not have answers as to the why. But I know in whom I have believed. And I know he's able. I know that God let things enter into my life that, that maybe I won't get an answer for until I stand before him. And maybe I won't care. When I'm standing in front of him, I'm probably not going to be really thinking about all the things I'm disappointed in. I'll probably be thinking about how amazing he is. And I couldn't, I couldn't even begin to fathom it when I was worshiping him here on earth in comparison to standing before the one who died for me. Right? At that moment, it's probably going to be pretty incredible. But we want to understand God is in control. When we have good times, when we have bad times. Somebody else isn't taking pot shots at us. I am the Lord who does all these things. It's me. Trust me. Trust me. The number of times when my kids were little, we'd go out to the beach and we'd be playing at the beach. My kids, we, the whole time we were in California, we grew up at the beach swimming. Uh, I couldn't surf because I'm too fat, but they, they would try to surf and have a good time. And we'd, but you had to learn there are things you need to understand at the ocean. You, you need to understand when you're swimming out there. My wife used to swim out so far that the, the lifeguards every once in a while would pull up in a boat and say, you okay? I'd say, oh, yeah. Yeah, I just try not to think that there's sharks swimming around under your feet. Probably isn't, right? Probably not. Anyway, but I teach my kids, okay, you got to be careful. Oh, look, this is what a rip is. Hey, guys, we're in a rip. Don't panic. Here's how you get out. Same way in our relationship with God. Sometimes in our life, we are in a rip. A rip tide is something that grabs a hold of you and pulls you out. Pulls you out offshore. Sometimes it can pull you offshore quite a substantial way. But if you know how to get out, don't fight the rip tide. Just swim out of it. Don't panic. How many times in our life are situations in our life coming through the hands of a God who loves us, and when we find ourselves in those situations, we're panicking. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says God has given us a spirit of fear and panic, right? Is that what it says? Yeah, sometimes we, that's how we act, right? But the reality is the scripture is telling us, look, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, right? Power, love, sound mind. So he wants us to learn what he's teaching them. Rely on me. No matter what, rely on me, and I'll show you the way through. 
Verse 8, shower, O heavens, from above. Let the rains, uh, let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. God is the, the origin of our righteousness, right? He is the cause. We don't make ourselves righteous. The Bible says, Isaiah very clearly declares that the best we can do is filthy rags. Our righteousness is filthy rags. What righteousness do we need? The righteousness of Christ. How do we, how do we apprehend that? By faith. We put our trust in Christ. We bow the knee. He is king. And he clothes us in his righteousness so that you and I become just men made perfect. Not because you worked your way to it or you accomplished it by willpower, but because you trust in him and he's done it for you. He's given it to you. For what? So that you can go do the things God ordained for you to do, right? The Bible says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has appointed that we would walk in them. That means there's a, there's a mission for me. There's a mission for you. There's a thing for us to fulfill in God. And so he's given us his spirit and he's given us his righteousness. He's the one who created it all so that we could walk in it, so that we could have victory. I can't have victory without him. With him, I can't fail. I put my trust, walk with him, and let the heavens rain down. Verse 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot (coughs) among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it? What are you making? Your work has no handles. God, you screwed this up. You're not a very good potter. This pot leaks. This is a crack pot. Yeah, if God made a crack pot, just so you know, he did it on purpose. Yeah, the Bible tells us that we are clay pots full of the treasure of God. And if we got a crack, let that treasure come flowing out. That's how what's inside us comes out for others to see. All poured out. What's he say? Don't complain. Woe to him who says to the father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman. With what are you in labor? What are you doing? Who is this God who has made us? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? What's he saying? I know the end from the beginning. I didn't lose it. Some other force didn't come and enforce its will and, and cause you to be more screwed up than God intended. Whatever is in, whatever our experience, whatever our struggles, whatever our battles, God is working in them, both to will and to do, for His good pleasure. And it is the chief purpose of man to glorify God in the life He lives, to honor His Creator who made Him, and He didn't make a mistake. I always say, I wish God would have made me more like Kathy. She's happy, compliant. She probably won't like that word. She, 
She is way quicker to joy. I am skeptical. Um, not so happy. I, maybe I'm happy when I take someone else's happiness. I'm that kind of weird person. But the God didn't make a mistake. There's things that, that are a part of who I am that bring a strength to our marriage that wouldn't be there if I was different. And there's things that Kathy has that bring strength to our marriage that wouldn't be there if she wasn't the way she is. I don't try to make her like me. She doesn't try. She did for a long time, but she doesn't anymore. <laughs> try to make me like her. The reality, the reality is we've realized, you know what? God don't make mistakes. He don't make mistakes. And if we'll stop asking the wrong questions and start asking the right ones, we'll probably get some of the answers we're looking for. Instead of all the whys, maybe, what now, Lord? Speak, your servant hears. But I don't want to shake my fist at the Creator. Thus says the Lord, will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. God's holding it all together. Colossians tells us that He is holding, and all things consist, have their consisting in Him. If God lets go, what happens? Big fireball. I learned a long time ago, if God is letting go in my life, it's just the same. If my life is all unraveling, it's coming apart at the seams, the answer is always the same. I have lost my focus. i got to get my eyes back on Christ. Now, I still may go through the fire, but that's totally different feeling than when your whole life is unraveling. Have you ever felt the difference? One, you feel like I'm right where I'm supposed to be, even though it's hard. And the other one, you're like, what in the world is going on? Got to get our eyes on the prize. The one who holds all things together. The work of his hands. He commands all their hosts. Verse 13, listen to what he says. Listen to all these I wills. I I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. When Cyrus turns the people loose, there's a number of Jews who have made a living in Babylon and they don't want to leave. So the majority of the nation that went into captivity stays there. But a remnant goes back to rebuild. You know what Cyrus does? He taxes all the people who stay. Oh, you're not going to go? Okay, well, you're going to help pay for the ones who are gone. And he has them pay, Egypt pay. You know what else he does? He opens up the storehouses and he gives them back all the things that were looted from the temple. Gives it all back to them to take back. And God declares it before he's ever born. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, the the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you. There is no other God besides him, the one who has established this deliverer. Just same God who established the deliverer Moses. 
So Cyrus is going to deliver the children of Israel back to the land. Now the second half of 45, he, he starts to give some instruction about how God saves. Look at it. Truly, you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. There is no other God. The maker of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. If God saves, He does not fail. God doesn't fail. He says, "You, but Israel is saved by the Lord, Yahweh, with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Because I know in whom I have believed, and He is able. It's not because I know what good person I am, and I know once I get on track like a bloodhound, I'll just stay there. No, I know God will use all means necessary to keep my eyes on Him. Sometimes a two-by-four, sometimes a four-by-four. At least one time it was a truck. Some of you guys were here then. (laughs) Hey, He always has a way. And, And I trust Him and I love Him because He will not let me go. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens... He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Look, God knows what He's doing. God knows what's happening. If we really understood it to the degree that we need to understand it, we would see churches pray more and talk less. Because God is able. We're pretty sure that, that we need to take matters into our own hands, right? And, and fix all those other crazy ideas that, that people have. Well, maybe we just need to call on the name of the Lord. You remember when Hezekiah prayed and we saw the deliverance from the Assyrians? There was no way they were going to make it. It's over. You're lost. The most powerful army is outside the gates. They just burned every city on the way to Jerusalem. Now they're at Jerusalem uh, 185,000 bad guys tomorrow morning, it's probably over for us. Hezekiah prayed. Next morning, there's no army out there. They're just gone. That's God. That's trusting in God's ability and power, putting our hope in Him. He says in verse 19, I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. He's telling them the end from the beginning. They're not even in captivity yet. And he's talking about them coming home. They're not even conquered yet. And he's telling them that there will be a deliverer that brings them back to the land. That he's not going to charge them money to let them go. That he's just going to cut them loose because he's God's servant. He says, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nation. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. There is only one name under heaven by which men 
must be saved. There's only one God who saves. The only one. Don't pray to the wooden idol. Don't pray to your own ability. Don't hope in your own willpower. Trust in the incomparable God who is able to deliver, who is ultimately in control of history. All of history is going to wrap up just like he said it is. That's how it will happen. We can trust, we can hope. He is indeed able to do it all. Declare, he says in verse 21. You don't think I'm the one? Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who's the one who said this about Cyrus before he was even born? Who declared of old? Was it not I, the Lord, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. No other Savior, no other name, no other place that we might turn. There's nobody else who knows the end from the beginning. It's God. It's Yahweh. We put our hope, our trust in Him. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. How many people does God want? There's enough text to say whosoever will. He says here, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Call on the name of the Lord and... You shall be. This is what the word declares. This is what the Lord is shouting. He says, for I'm the God and there's no other. There's nobody. I'm the one. You turn to me. What if you're the king of the most powerful nation and you just conquered the the nation of Israel and you destroy the temple and you stole all the stuff out of there and you slain hundreds of thousands of of, uh, Israelites. Uh, Can you be saved? Yeah, and you could also write a chapter in the Bible. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar's not more screwed up than I am. And if it makes you feel any better, I'm not more screwed up than you are. <laughs> and you're probably not more screwed up than I am. God is able in all and anyone who will turn their eyes upon him to call on his name. To the ends of the earth, he says, turn to me and I'll save you. Come to me. The Lord is able. He says, by myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. And every tongue will swear allegiance. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like Philippians chapter 2. Right? Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who being in the very form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation. Took on the form of a man. The form of a bondservant. What's the scripture tell us? Because he humbled himself so God has lifted him up. So that what? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here in Isaiah, Isaiah is saying, this is what God says. I want you to know, one day every knee will bow. 
But right now you have that opportunity not being forced upon you by standing before the greatest being ever. Now you have the opportunity to do it of your own will. To bow the knee. To proclaim allegiance with your tongue. How do they say it in Romans 10, 9 and 10? Surely you guys know. You're almost there. Confess with your mouth the... Thank you. I don't know why you're sitting back there so quiet. Okay. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you shall be saved. Confess with the mouth. Right? And it's the same thing he's saying. Every knee will bow. It's an act of humility. Every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Yahweh. Beautiful, beautiful scripture calling out to us. Verse 24. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. Where do I get my strength from? From the Lord. Where do I get my righteousness from? From the Lord. Can I make my own? No. He declares over and over again. I have failed on anything I've ever tried to do with my own free willpower. It's worthless. My garage is a testimony to things that have been started and never finished. Before my wife laughs too hard, her sewing room is the same way. But the reality is, right, when we have been empowered by Him, right, the Lord hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, sound mind. God gives us the righteousness that we need. God gives us the strength we need. No matter what you're facing, no matter what horrific thing you're going through or have gone through, God will give you the strength and the righteousness for it. There's no other place where it can be found. It's in Him. It's with Him. It's through Him. He is righteousness and strength. To Him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against Him. Everyone who has rejected Christ on the day they stand before God are going to of their own bow the knee and of their own confess with their mouth, You are Lord. And be ashamed Because they didn't do it when they could. Now they see him and they say, oh yeah. Yeah, you're the king. You're God. You're the one. In the Lord, he says in verse 25, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. All the offspring of Israel. Of Israel. Now Paul's going to build on that idea, Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's going to tell us not everyone who calls himself Israel is Israel. What's that mean? You don't enter in and become part of those who are governed by God by birth. You enter in by faith. And God's able to graft in the wild branches, and God's able to graft in the natural branches. God is able. Last week in Philippians, what is it that Paul declared? We are the circumcision who worship the Father 
in spirit and in truth. That we become those of which scripture speaks that are governed by God. Is God not your king? That's all Israel means. Governed by God. The people of God. Does that mean that, that that's corporate Israel? Does God have a plan yet for the state of Israel? I think so. Those two aren't necessarily of the same sort. Even when he does have the concept of moving with corporate Israel, the scripture declares that not everyone who calls himself Israel is Israel, but those who what are submitted to the Lord. That's Israel. You don't, you don't get to be a, a believer, a part of the family of God, by declaring, hey, I'm part of the family of God. You get to be part of the family of God by declaring Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how you get there. And they'll all be saved. That's why Paul would declare all of Israel shall be saved. All those governed by God. All those held by him. Scripture declares over and over again, within Israel there is always a remnant, a faithful few. And God is able to save. He's able to to divide between the wicked and the just. Amen? So let's put our trust in him so us wicked can become just. All right? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, the opportunity to study your word, God, to look into Isaiah 45. Lord, I pray that we might be able to lay hold of the things that you are speaking, Lord God, that we might be able to sink our teeth into the deep things of God, Lord, to wrestle our way through difficult concepts, Lord. And ultimately, the one goal of our life is to know you, to know you, to trust you, to know that you indeed are able, that you are moving and working in our midst, and we can trust you no matter how it looks, no matter what things have entered into my life, for in you, is all righteousness and strength. In you is all love and power and sound mind. And you are the God who gives liberally to those who ask. So Lord, we look to you. Be our strength and our shield and our exceedingly great reward. For we give you all the praise and glory for what you are doing and how you are working in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.